Today, I want to talk about Christian maturity. Um, Thomas Bergler, in his incredible book, The Juvenilization of American Christianity, he begins that book by saying, we're all adolescents now. He uh, produced two books on this particular topic of juvenilization. And let me, let me just define that for you. What Burglar, how Burglar defines it is, is, is this way. He says, juvenilization is the process by which the religious beliefs, practices, and developmental characteristics of adolescence become accepted as appropriate for Christians of all ages. Begins with a praiseworthy goal of adapting the faith to appeal to the young, but it ends badly with both youth and adults embracing immature versions of the faith. Now, I love that definition, and I think it's an accurate definition. He, he um, explains that this development in the Christian community and evangelicalism happened rather quietly. Um, between 1930 and 1950, he, he points out that Americans dealt with the Great Depression, World War II, and the Cold War, and many people were worried at that time that the American way of life would go away. And so... Um, he says, concerned Christians launched dozens of new youth organizations in this period in the hopes of protecting young people from the evil effects of these crises and mobilizing them to make a difference in the dangerous, you know, nature of the world. Well, he, he also, you know, elaborates on that effort and it, and it kind of becomes that slogan that we hear so often, the children are the future, like these youth are the future of the church. They're the future of, of everything, you know? And so that um, intention, it, I think, is well-meaning, but it has some disastrous effects in the life of Christians. Uh, first of all, in, in the 1940s and 50s, the idea of the teenager— um, settled into a cultural norm. That term wasn't used up until that point, but it started settling into the norm. And um, and then after that period, the 1960s then accelerated the process of youth-centric organizations and youth-centric movements. Burglar notes here, older cultural conceptions of adulthood encouraged responsibility, self-denial, and service. In the first half of the 20th century, most people clearly entered adulthood in their teens or early 20s by virtue of getting married, getting a job, and having children. More recently, though, the passage to adulthood has been delayed and rendered more subjective for most middle-class Americans. Indeed, it is likely that the juvenilization of American Christianity and the emergence of the new immature adulthood that is, in just American culture in general, have mutually reinforced each other. So this happened unintentionally. It wasn't a scheme or anything, but these youth-driven movements, while they had good intentions, um, the unintended effect was an adolescent Christianity almost universally unquestioned as the norm. So what, what happened here was... Uh, different organizations that were formed, organizations that were good organizations like Youth for Christ and things like that. Those organizations, they drew in a lot of youth. And so then churches around America saw this, this draw of young people. And so their, their own desire to see 
the children that are our future carry on the faith to the next generation and all of these different things and preserving the American way of life, all of that. Those desires then prompted churches to say, well, if that youth movement, if that youth organization, if they're so centered on young people and it's drawing all of them, if we want our movement to continue and our way of life to continue, then we too have to organize our church and organize the way that we do things around young people, what they desire, the things that they like. And we're not going to, we're not going to necessarily call them to a new standard of maturity, spiritual or otherwise. All that we're going to do is match everything that they, uh, that they desire to our programming and our scheduling and our planning and our culture in our church. We'll, We'll just make everything youth centric in our church. And then we too will attract all of these younger people Burglar points out here, um, adolescents have good developmental reasons for at least sometimes thinking and acting in an immature fashion. That is, adolescent behavior makes sense for adolescents. But he goes on to note, it, it is harder to explain why adults feel free to neglect the character traits of Christian maturity. So we have to come up with that and we have to have a conversation about that. Are there character traits of Christian maturity? Are there things that we should expect people to um, acquire? Are there traits and attributes and characteristics of Christian maturity that we should expect people growing up in the faith to acquire? Another great book written on this theme is Homespun Gospel, The Triumph of Sentimentality in Contemporary American Evangelicalism. This is a book by Todd Brenneman, and I will put all these books in the show notes for you. But Todd Brenneman um, points out that too often, he says, scholars have paid attention to the mind of evangelicalism. This is what we talked about last, last, the last two weeks, the mind of evangelicalism. He goes... But you're not recognizing that most evangelicals have abandoned the life of the mind in favor of a religious life of emotion, of emotion. So in favor of the emotional life, Brenneman says evangelicals have committed themselves to sentimentalism in three primary areas. And this is fascinating. He says we, they, Americans have committed themselves, American evangelicals have committed themselves to sentimentalism in three areas, the fatherhood of God and the subsequent infancy of human beings and then the nostalgia of home and the nuclear family. The fatherhood of God and the subsequent infancy of human beings, that categorizes, I think, or characterizes, I think, uh, evangelical um, immaturity most clearly. Brenneman points out, if God is father, it makes sense that contemporary evangelicals would cast human beings as children. It's important to note, though, that the childhood of, human, of humanity is constructed as an early childhood. Human beings in the minds of evangelical sentimentalists are often little children. There is rarely a place for adult children in modern evangelicalism. So think about that. The way that we talk about being a child of God, what do you think in your mind when you think I'm a child of God? Most of the time when that's mentioned, we have in mind, or maybe the people that we're engaging with have in mind the the little child. I'm not a grown child, uh, you know, that as though I'm still a child of my parents, though I'm an adult. We don't have that in mind at all. We have little child, um, early childhood in mind. So 
I believe that juvenilization, this desire to invest in our children as the future, and thus we we uh, shift down all of our programming, we we dumb down all of our teaching, we make sure everything is at the level that a teenager would find acceptable and attractive. We bring all of that down, plus you add to that this kind of natural sentimentality. I think those things have combined to assault the idea of Christian maturity at all. In fact, if you talk about the idea that a Christian should be pursuing spiritual maturity, the the offended response is staggering. People in many local churches will respond to this call for spiritual maturity with offense. Like, how dare you say that I'm not already as mature as I should be in whatever way? And so um, I think those two things have combined, and I think they've combined in a a terrifying way. Um, And so what I want to kind of go over quickly um, in in this episode is just um, um, a quick biblical theology of Christian maturity, of spiritual maturity. I wrote uh, s- several blog posts at my website, jeremyjessen.com, on this. And in fact, um, a lot of what I'm going to say here is already written there. So if you want to, um, you know, I, I, I guess you can stop listening if you want to. Um, don't, don't do that. But I mean, if you want to, you could and go read all of the the uh, areas that I discuss in here and, and every, everything is cited there as well. So you can go and look up different resources, but um, we have to look that, look at the reality of sanctification in the life of a believer. There's a distinctive or a distinction between definitive sanctification occurring once at the beginning of salvation and progressive sanctification leading to spiritual maturity and Holiness. So there is a reality of being sanctified that is set apart by God and the work of the Holy Spirit, but there is also a progressive sanctification that happens in the life of the believer leading to spiritual maturity, and that is clearly described in Scripture. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 is clear. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So there's an element of human responsibility here. Work out your own salvation alongside divine activity. God is at work within you. He gives both the desire to do the the God-glorifying thing to obey and the power to obey. And so um, we, we see that we are, we're, we're balancing the reality of God at work in us and our making progress in sanctification. And so um, there are uh, so many authors that cover this topic, but I want to limit it to a few Puritans in this moment. Here, uh, Thomas Watson, in his great book, A Body of Divinity, says sanctification is progressive. If it does not grow, it is because it does not live. John Owen says the work of sanctification is progressive. And um, he says it is begun at once and carries on gradually. So, and then some modern theologians have come in and encouraged or agreed with this. Wayne Grudem, sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual 
lives. So it just simply put, sanctification is the progressive work whereby a believer becomes holy. And, and that holiness, progression in holiness is a spiritual maturity, is a growth in maturity. And so we, we see that as uh, a reality in scripture. Burglar in his sequel to the juvenilization of American Christianity from here to maturity, he points out, quote, the ultimate goal of this process, that is sanctification, is perfect conformity to the image of Christ, who is the perfect image of God. Thus, for Christians, for Christians, holiness is a current status, an ongoing process, and an ultimate goal only reached in the life to come. So it's the ultimate aim of the life of the believer, he says. It's a work of God and the work of the believer. It's begun at the separation from evil in the beginning of our salvation, but it is it progresses on in growth. And that then that growth is a growth of the entire man. We're, we're looking at the intellect, the emotions, and the will. We're looking at the entirety of our being. So the, our mind is indeed changed. Our mind is indeed changed. Um, we, we see in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that Paul is praying for the Philippian church that they would love God and others through the twin guardians of knowledge and discernment. Knowledge consists of the content of what is definitely known, of full knowledge. And discernment just means to regard something as genuine or worthy on the basis of testing. So you're, you're, you're seeing this, this growth in understanding, in knowledge, and in maturity. Um, Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, yet among the mature, we impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. So there's a, a growth in wisdom, a growth in knowledge and maturity. And so all of these different aspects in the intellect are present when it comes to growing in maturity. But that, that's not just the intellect, but it's the affections as well. And this is where we want to particularly attack the idea that Todd Brenneman is bringing about in Homespun Gospel, that we're abandoning the work of the mind for a work of the emotions. But, but for the Christian to pursue maturity, it doesn't mean that we abandon the emotions altogether, but that truth and knowledge and wisdom indeed impact and affect our emotions. Paul tells Timothy that the goal of doctrine and teaching is love coming from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. 1 John 2, 12 through 17. It's one of the clearest calls to Christian maturity in love in scripture. He talks to his readers as spiritual children. Um, he says that they know the father, they know they've been converted, but that's about it. Um, they are, as one commentator points out, prone to temptation, weakness, and stumbling. And then he expects the, them to mature to a stage of spiritual young men in chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. When spiritual children begin to grow, there's an emphasis on scripture toward knowledge and wisdom, which happens through the study and the application of scripture. But then he gives them a third stage of spiritual growth, which is becoming a spiritual parent, a spiritual father. The idea in this designation of knowing God has more to do with this experiential knowledge, knowing, loving, desiring God, to use Piper's phrase in that sense. And so these stages of spiritual maturity are inseparably linked um, for the brothers in the community of faith to whom John is writing. So that, 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 
that mind has to change, the, the heart has to change, but then the actions must change as well. Kevin DeYoung in his great book, The Whole in Our Holiness, he points out that holiness actually looks like obedience to God's commands. God's commands are given as a means of grace so that we might grow in godliness and show that we love Him. The rule for holiness is the law, particularly the Ten Commandments. Christians don't always agree on how to view the law, but historically, the church has put the Ten Commandments at the center of its instruction for God's people, especially for children and new believers. We are to obey. We are to honor the Lord in the way that we live our lives. That's a a part of what it looks like to grow in maturity in our actions. So our thinking has to change, our affections, our love for God and love for others, that changes. And then our actions, the way that we obey, the things that we do, that changes. So all of these aspects are true aspects of spiritual maturity. And we take heart that the Holy Spirit aids us in this pursuit. Philippians 2 that I read earlier, that God is at work within you. He's producing the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and all the rest. So the Holy Spirit is at work in us. We have the scriptures that by the scriptures, we are sanctified in truth. John 17, 17, we, we're revealed as sinners in James 1. We're pierced by the word in Hebrews 4, washed in the word, Ephesians 5. We're taught, rebuked, corrected, and trained by the word in 2 Timothy 3. We're grown up by the word in 1 Peter 2, equipped for ministry in Ephesians 4. So many realities that happen to us and 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 through us in the scriptures. We hide God's word in our heart that we might not sin against him. All of those realities are a part of spiritual maturity, and they're all of the aid that come to us from God himself. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us the word, but gratefully, he gives us the church. And this is where I want to lean into the aim of this podcast, which is to encourage pastor theologians. God has put you in the life of the church in the position that you're in to equip the saints to build up the body of Christ so that they may reach, Ephesians 4 says, mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that they may no longer be children, keeping watch over their souls. That is your role as a as a shepherd, as a pastor teacher, as a pastor theologian. And so take heart Pastor, know that even if people in your congregation don't see that as your role, God does. God sees as your role being a pastor theologian to advance the spiritual maturity of the people under your charge. So take heart and remember the realities that the culture is pressing forward when it comes to juvenilization of American Christianity or when it comes to this homespun gospel idea, this this sentimentality. And don't so much rail against those things, though it can be a frustrating and difficult and painful thing to try and be a pastor theologian when maybe no one in your church wants that. That can be difficult and it's completely understandable. But take heart knowing that the point of the Christian life is to be growing and the point of the pastor theologian is to lead people in that growth. Take heart, uh, continue to be encouraged, I pray, by this podcast. Um, please let me know your comments and, and feedback to, to the podcast. I would love to hear your thoughts. You can go to my website at jeremyjessen.com and contact me. 
or you can comment on the episode page for this particular episode. Uh, More updates are coming to the website, so stay tuned there, and I look forward to our next Ordinary Conversation. Conversation.